You know, a lot of people don't know that going to the emergency room can be 10 times as more costly as seeing your doctor or going to an urgent care. A lot of people think going to the emergency room is the best and first line of defense when you're not well. That may be the case often, but many times it's not. I'm going to walk you through when it's not in your best interest to go to the emergency room and how you can navigate that decision. Stay tuned and learn more. Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bakhtari, MD, Dr. Bakhtari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bakhtari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, my name is Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari, and welcome to my channel, where I'm going to give you the inside scoop on healthcare. I have over 20 years of clinical experience in medicine as an internist, pulmonary, and critical care doctor. I've been a hospital administrator as well as worked for healthcare insurance companies, and I've been on clinical faculty at several medical schools. So I've seen healthcare from every angle. And I'm going to bring all that inside information to you so you can know what the experts really know and how you can use that information to navigate your healthcare. Okay, let's jump into today's topic. So many people actually have this misconception that the emergency room has been around forever, but actually it hasn't. Prior to World War II, emergency rooms didn't exist. If you were involved in an accident, for example, people would just take you home to get better or die. It was really with the advent of World War II and with mass units and trauma units that that concept really came across that we could get people to come to one location and do diagnostic and therapeutic care to you know provide better outcomes. After World War II, the concept came up, but it didn't really take hold until 1960s when the first emergency room popped up and until 1970s when emergency room became a specialty with its own training program. Since then, of course, it's matured and now everyone just takes it for, takes it for granted. But there was a time when emergency rooms didn't exist. Now, since they have come to existence, they've evolved, changed. Prior to World War II, really, the, uh, the first person that you would contact if you were ill was your primary care doctor who would come to your house potentially. In fact, people wanted to avoid the hospital because the hospital was associated with you know, infectious diseases, and only the indigent and the people who didn't have a place and were homeless would go to the hospital. Most people would get their care at home where their doctor would come visit them. Once uh, the emergency room evolved where you, people actually got good care, and mainly in the 1960s and 70s, then it became the, the, the place of first choice when people were ill. And initially, people started to come to the emergency room for all sorts of reasons because they just equated then at that point with emergency room as better care. And that's continued to evolve where now people rarely see their primary care doctor as first point of contact if they're injured or severely ill. And now primary doctors have been relegated to dealing with chronic illnesses or ongoing illnesses, but not deal with frontline 
illnesses. So the emergency room actually continued to grow. And, you know, these days we have about 150 million visits to the emergency room. You know, the emergency room also evolved in 1986 when Congress passed the law saying that no one could be turned back from an emergency room for their inability to pay. And they had to basically stabilize and treat everyone. That came out of the uh, overuse of ERs by 1986 for people who are using it for primary care or other non-essential reasons. Once that came into place and the ERs could not refuse anybody, emergency room visits continued to grow. The first urgent care evolved in the 1970s, but didn't really take off uh, for the until the last 20 years. And now we have about 9,000 urgent cares in the United States. Urgent care has really evolved from mainly from people who didn't need to go to the emergency room, but it was very difficult for them to see their primary care doctors. Also, over the last 40 years, primary care doctors have limited the amount of time they will see people uh, after five o'clock in the evenings and on weekends. So the need for a replacement for not super urgent stuff on nights and weekends evolved, and I, that left an opening for urgent cares to grow and evolve. Initially, when uh, emergency rooms evolved in the 1960s and 70s, even though they became open 24 hours a day to take care of injured people, initially they were manned by interns, residents, and other doctors who were sort of in between jobs and or didn't have a specific job and it didn't really become a specialty until the 70s and really 80s when emergency room doctors trained specifically to take care of people in the emergency room you know i i, I think initially you know the emergency room when it first evolved people gravitated towards the emergency room because it was a place unlike no others where they could uh, get diagnostic testing and get access to immediate therapy, or there was a pharmacy close by. And so it really took off once people realized that this was a place where they could get urgent, immediate care with pretty much everything right at the ready. That caused the overuse, and that caused the blowback by hospital administrators to sort of limit the people who could go to the emergency room, which then caused Congress to pass that bill in 1986 as a blowback to hospital administrators trying to cut back emergency room uh, visits. So the pendulum has gone that way. Now we see more and more people using the emergency room again. So now we're seeing insurance companies increase the copay and often deny unnecessary ER visits and basically channel their patients to go to urgent cares or call their primary care doctor when it's not necessary. So again, we see this series of excesses, blowback, excesses, blowback. Uh, and I think the emergency room is a perfect example. And we're going to see a lot of that in other aspects of healthcare that we're going to talk about in future episodes, where you see uh, a certain thing in medicine that people sort of take advantage of, and not just people, doctors and hospitals. Uh, those excesses become obvious. And then what we do is then we kind of come up with a countercurrent method to try to, to mitigate that. And then that goes overboard. And then we try to mitigate that. So it's going to be a running theme we're going to see in a lot of healthcare. What is interesting is the pandemic has shown is the number of ER visits went down dramatically. And a lot of that was the unnecessary visits that we were, people were using. 
I mean, intermingled in that, there were people with heart attacks that should have gone to the yard, but were afraid to go because of COVID-19. But a lot of the unnecessary, you know, falls and sprains and what have you, you know, those people just didn't go to the emergency room. So in fact, a lot of the ERs during the pandemic had to cut staff, which is ironic because I think we all think, oh, the ERs are being overrun with COVID patients. But there, and there were a lot of COVID patients, but the other sort of non-serious people, non-serious injuries did not go to the ER up to the point where the ER was cutting staff back. Like some people, I mean, unfortunately, some people were having appendicitis and they wouldn't go because they didn't want to get COVID. You know, so there were people who had, you know, heart attacks and, you know, appendicitis are like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to the emergency room. So yeah, it's funny because um, a lot of the ER staff said it was like almost like a ghost town on many shifts because uh, the traditional, somebody fell and sprained their ankle or had a cut or whatever, they're like, you know what, um, we'll, we'll try to figure this out without going to the ER. I, in fact, um, just anecdotally, I, my kid's swim, swim teacher was telling me she was in a car accident uh, during the pandemic and you know she got rear-ended and she was pretty shaken up and had a fracture or two and they offered to take her to the ER and she said, no way, she wasn't going to go. And you know she eventually ha- had it taken care of, but obviously you know, people were afraid to go to the ER during the pandemic. I think during the pandemic, what we saw is that a lot of people avoided, you know, going to see their primary care doctor for, for certainly general physicals and routine stuff. And to some level, they avoided the ER and urgent cares unless it was absolutely necessary. So I think the pandemic across the board forced people to uh, retool and restaff. I know most primary care doctors or a lot of them went to telemedicine. Uh, a lot of the urgent cares just weren't seeing the volume and the ERs weren't seeing the volume because people were just afraid that they were going to catch COVID. I think there was this connotation that these facilities were just full of COVID patients. And if they went in for a cut or a sprain, that they would be exposing themselves. Which leads me into this whole discussion now, you know, post-COVID or pre-COVID, you know, what are the differences between the emergency room and when should you go to the ER versus when should you go to the urgent care versus when should you call your primary care doctor? I mean, the first thing you really have to keep in mind is if you're too conservative or too aggressive, it can be bad both ways. So obviously, if you feel like you have a life-threatening illness or some sort of injury or problem that will definitely get worse in t- if you wait, then you may uh, opt to go to the emergency room in an abundance of caution even if you're in, on the fence. But if you're pretty clear that this is something that's not life-threatening and can be managed at a lower level, then going to an urgent care is really a great option. There's 9,000 urgent cares in the United States, more more urgent cares than the ERs. I think there's about 5,000 ERs. Uh, and a lot of them are open 24 hours a day, just like the uh, emergency room. And while they may not have all of the diagnostic and pharmaceutical capabilities of an ER, they have enough that if you have a moderate type of situation, that the more than likely they would be able to take care of it. And lastly, if you really have something that can be seen by your primary care doctor, meaning uh, you know it can wait a few days until it's addressed, then making an appointment with your primary care doctor. Now, I know a lot of people will give me blowback and say, oh, 
I, I can't see my primary care doctor for three weeks or a month or whatever. If that's the case, then an urgent care might be the better answer. Uh, so it really depends on your insurance and your access to your primary care doctor. If you have good access to your primary care doctor, then uh, that's the way to go. The other thing is to look at the financial side of it. You know, an ER visit is going to be about 10 times more expensive than an urgent care visit. So you have to factor that in, and you, especially if you're paying cash. And if you're not paying cash, you really have to factor what the copay is going to be, you know, if you go to the ER versus an urgent care versus see your primary doctor. So I think those are all factors that you need to take into account. Now, if you're ill or if it's life-threatening, all finances go out the window. You should definitely go to the emergency room. But if you're not, then, you, you know, you may have some financial repercussions. So you need to factor that into your decision. One of the things you have to understand in an emergency room, you have access pretty much to everything the hospital has available, both diagnostically, therapeutically. That includes the radiology department, the pharmacy department, access to specialists. So in an ER, they can get an orthopedic surgeon potentially to see you, a cardiovascular surgeon, a cardiologist. Those are things you will not have access to in most urgent cares. So if you decide to go in urgent care, some, there are some things you need to know. You will probably not get access to a specialist. So you have to understand that whatever your issue is, do you feel that a primary care or urgent care doctor could manage? Would they have the knowledge base and the experience to deal with that? Um, and you then have to also understand that they probably will not have access in most urgent cares to CAT scans uh, or other diagnostic testing, which are more exquisite. Now, sometimes they can send you out uh, to a place like that, but that would maybe involve another trip. So think about that. So when you're looking and we're trying to decide where I should go, uh, you have to have a fair understanding is, am I going to need uh, pretty extensive diagnostic testing? And am I going to need possibly a specialist to see me? And those will probably help you make a decision about going to an urgent care. Now, going to your primary care doctor is even a little more difficult in terms of resources. Yes, some primary care doctors will have a blood draw station in their office where they could draw your blood, but those results often don't come back until the next day or the following day. So, you know, you give up that when you go see your primary care doctor. So if you think you're going to need some sort of blood testing, uh, or an x-ray that the results should come back that day, your primary care doctor often cannot provide that. That's not always true. There are some primary care doctors that literally work in clinics that have some of that, uh, and you should really scout that out before you make a decision. There are some other subtle differences. I mean, people have to understand, you know, if you go to the ER, I think we all pretty much know often it's going to be a three, four-hour wait. It's going to be inefficient. We're okay with that. We're expecting it. You know, urgent cares by and large have 20, 30 minute waits. So, you know, you've got the wait time, you've got the economics. Um, and so, you know, you have to factor that in, in terms of how important is it to go to the emergency room. Now, the flip side is if you're wrong, if you make the wrong decision and you go to an urgent care or call and make an appointment to see your primary care doctor, some really valuable time could be lost, which potentially, you know, can make an impact on, on, on the outcome. So it's really important to, when in doubt, you know, look at everything. If you have any 
serious concerns that this may be life-threatening or in any way serious, you know, go to the emergency room. But, you know, if it's something you're pretty sure, yeah, I've had, you know, I have these migraines all the time or whatever it is you're thinking about, uh, then maybe, you know, going to an urgent care. And often if it's really kind of chronic or repetitive and you have a good handle on it, you know, I know a lot of uh, primary care doctors are doing phone and telephone visits, um, telemedicine visits. So there are now other alternatives you can use rather than even go to an urgent care. I think, uh, I, I don't know if uh, most people are aware, but during the COVID-19, uh, a lot of the telemedicine restrictions were removed. In the past, a lot, the, a lot of the insurance companies would not reimburse or not reimburse at, as highly for a telemedicine visit as an in-person visit. So because of that, you know, it really kind of forced a lot of people not to provide telemedicine visits. Uh, that was partially removed during COVID, and our hope is that it stays because clearly there are certain times where you need to go see the doctor, and there's other times where, you know, even a telephone call or, or a telemedicine call can handle it. You know, if you remember one thing, you know, one-third of all visits to primary care doctors involve reassurance, meaning there's nothing wrong with the person. And if you understand that one third of all visits, simply the person wants the doctor or clinician to hear their issue and reassure them that this is not something they should be concerned about. So I know I get that all the time where friends literally will call me and say, hey, you know, my wife has a swollen ankle or a swollen knee because she was, um, you know, playing volleyball, but, you know, it's getting worse and it's getting red. What should I do? So a lot of times, you know, you can get that sort of medical insight through a telemedicine call, a phone call, or potentially you know, going down to your primary care offices if they can see you th that quickly. So I'm hoping a lot of the, the changes that COVID kind of forced upon us will be positive changes that will allow people easier access to healthcare for very routine kind of stuff, literally by opening up an app on your phone or you know, getting on your computer. The technology has evolved that you can go to a clinic where the doctor is not there and they have a, a stethoscope that goes through the computer and the nurse or whoever can put it on your chest and they can hear your heart sounds or see in your eyes and ears. So that technology exists. I'm not sure that's for telemedicine at home, but that's for telemedicine where you go to a location where there's no doctor uh, and so that doctor can have sort of like do a quasi physical on you. There was a device that was just uh, came out with that literally is an ophthalmoscope, otoscope, and I think a stethoscope all in one. That's trans. That's the information is communicated through uh, the cloud to a doctor waiting somewhere else. So I, yeah, I think the technology is evolving. Uh, you know, even in ICU medicine, not to change subjects, but. A lot, there are several ICUs in the country where the, doc, the ICU doctor is remote and looks at all the vital signs and stuff from the, life, from the machines that keep people on life support. And they get all that feedback through a computer uh, because a lot of treating people on life support is really the data you're getting from all the machines and with the nurses sort of filling in and giving you the information in between. So to go back, and if you think about it, if one-third of visits are about reassurance, if you accept that number, that probably means one-third of visits could probably be handled 
for the most part. And remember, with telemedicine, they also have the ability to send you in for blood work or to say, you know, that looks a little more serious. Maybe you should come to the office. So it's not a like a light switch where you says telemedicine or not telemedicine. You can combine that telemedicine with laboratory testing, with, you know, coming in, you know, if if it really gets to the next level. So, but yeah, in certain cases, you just have to have someone physically see you. You know, but there was an old adage. I, I remember uh, when I was in medical school, uh, I had an attending, an older gentleman, tell me they could make the diagnosis of a patient by hearing their story, meaning that, you know, whatever his story that the medical residents or students told them, and walking into the room. They said, just like, I could walk into the room and almost tell you what the diagnosis was because, you know, people who are super sick have a certain look. And of course, you don't want to go based on that alone. But I think this is sort of the the art of medicine where, you know, hearing the patient's story, understanding the history and the sequence of events, whether the symptoms have been there before, how long does it, you know, pain radiate anywhere, what other symptoms do you have associated with that? When you really, you know, what doctors really do, and now, now that I've been doing it for a long, I mean, I still do a physical exam when I see a patient, but really that's always, for the most part, to confirm my diagnosis that I already have in my brain. Rarely will my physical exam change my diagnosis. It can, but nine out of 10 times, what I'm thinking when the person is talking to me is what we find when we you know, examine the patient, do the laboratory testing, do the ultrasound. Sometimes you're surprised, but again, for the vast majority of it, the history, the details, the patient's past medical history, their social history, their surgical history, all tell a story. And if you've been doing it for a very long time, you can actually put the puzzle together. So I think that's where telemedicine comes in. If you're a seasoned clinician, hopefully you will know when to say, oh yeah, I think with a fair degree of certainty, I think this is diagnosis. And you'll also hopefully be seasoned up to say, wait a minute, I, I think I need to see you or you need to go to the ER or you need to go to the urgent care. Traditionally, there's been a lot of blowback. I mean, for good reason. I think a lot of insurers, Medicare, really wanted the doctor to see the patient and not use telemedicine as, as this way to sort of get out of seeing the patient. So I, I get that. So, you know, that, you know, we don't want to shortchange the patient, but in terms of access, convenience, you know, is this going to actually maybe save lives by getting people to contact the medical professional sooner because they just have to pick up a phone, an app, and and boom, get some medical insight? Because otherwise, you know, they might be Googling the information or, or, you know, calling their neighbor who used to be a paramedic and getting their information that way, not to put any put paramedics down. I'm just saying, if you don't have access to clinicians readily, and we have a lot of obstacles in the way of you having access to them, what are people going to do? They're going to Google it. They're going to call their their friend who used to be a nurse, you know, and nothing wrong with that either. But if you have a question that really should be addressed by a clinician, you know, what can we do to remove friction in the system that allows you to at least get that initial access to that clinician. But again, you know, I think their their perspective, I mean, reading into it, their perspective was, oh, then all these 
you know, doctors or whoever would just like do this, you know, like whole telemedicine scheme where they see, you know, a bunch of people without getting an office or getting a staff or, you know, I think they were trying to protect the patient, if that makes sense. I'm assuming that the accountability might have been less. And I think there was also concern that, you know, on some level, you need to examine the patient and uh, and see the patient, touch the patient. But, you know, I think also this, the, the art of touching a patient has evolved. You know, 30, 40 years ago, there were no ultrasound. You know, there was no CAT scans that were readily available. So, you know, if you had an enlarged liver, you know, we used to actually, you know, we still do, but the, the way to diagnose it is to literally palpate the liver, measure it out like by, by tapping on it. Now, if a doctor thinks the liver is enlarged, they just get a CAT scan or an ultrasound. They're not going to, yeah, they may tap it out themselves. And unless it's humongous, you know, they're, if it's just slightly enlarged or whatever, you know, they're not going to leave it up to their physical exam and, you know, make the determination based on their physical only. So it's gotten to the point where we have all this imaging technology. So we're going to let the imaging technology decide that information. And, you know, I mean, it has some of the art of doing a physical exam lesson. I'm Unfortunately, it has. I don't think it should. I think physicians should still, you know, manually, you know, do the... This, physical exams we used to do 30, 40 years ago. But I think a lot of um, clinicians just say, well, no matter what I think, I'm going to get an ultrasound anyway. So we'll let that decide. There is, you know, like everything else, there is a downside to having telemedicine being abused where people set up these, you know, mills and they just kind of do all this telemedicine and, you know, and just churning patients and not really. So I'm not saying that's happening now, but I mean, I'm just saying that it's really important if we're going to do telemedicine that you know we do it correctly and we have the level same level of accountability as we do when the patient is in the office. Okay, I think we've gone through some of the differences, you know, between going to the ER, urgent care, primary care doctor, but let's say you decide you're going to go to the ER for good reason. So what you know, how do we navigate this ER visit? The first thing you got to understand is if you go to the emergency room, it's going to be different than your other experiences. For one, the emergency room is not first come, first serve. And you have to understand that going into it. Going into the ER, the first person you're going to meet is someone who's going to triage your, your severity of illness. Often that's a nurse. She's going to do that by questioning you and taking your vitals and your history. That's assuming you didn't come to the emergency room on an ambulance if you walked in. At that point, you have to then be prepared for potentially a very long wait because if your level of illness does not rise to the level of illness that other people have in the ER, you may have to wait until those people are seen first. The other thing I think people need to understand is the ER is a part of the hospital, but in many ways is different than the hospital. An emergency room is run by a bunch of different amazing professionals, including physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, uh, EKG techs, <laughs> phlebotomists, and so on. And so as you navigate that, you need to understand that you're going to be meeting people from all different professional viewpoints and jobs. Uh, I know I, a lot of times uh, I've been in the ER and 
literally the first person that walks into a person's room, the patient starts telling him everything. And, <laughs> and then, um, you know, then they find out that's just a, like a nurse's aide who's just putting the EKG monitor on them or, or something like that. So first of all, the first thing you need to do when you go to the ER after you get past the triage nurse is to figure out who you're talking to and make sure that your level of conversation matches what they're there for. It's not to say that everybody who sees you is not interested in what you have to say, but if someone's there simply to draw your blood, that may not be the right person to go into excruciating detail about some of your Ill, some of your symptoms, for example. So just to remember that. And also remember, not everybody who you see works directly for the hospital that you're at. A lot of the emergency room doctors are contracted doctors who belong to companies that the hospital is contracted out with, or it's a group of private physicians that rotate through the hospital. So often they're not hospital employees directly, although they represent the best interests of the hospital. So it's really under, it's important to understand. And also some of the staff you may meet, some of the nurses you may meet, uh, maybe from agencies that are hired, especially in the ER when they're very busy. So it's very important to understand that you're not necessarily talking to a hospital employee, but you're talking to people who, of course, represent the hospital and want your best interest. After you uh, get to the ER and after you're seen, it's really important to find out who is the, who the first clinician that's going to see you. In the olden days, and when I say olden days, I mean 10 years ago, possibly, the person who saw you was the emergency room doctor. That's evolving, and you know there's a significant possibility you might see a physician assistant, you might see a nurse practitioner, um, and those clinicians might be the first or maybe the, the last clinician you see in an ER. Their job, of course, as clinicians is to hopefully cons consult with the ER doctor to tell them about your case and make a collaborative decision. But you should know you may not be talking to the ER doctor. Now, for very simple problems, that's really no big deal. But if, you're, if you have a complex life-threatening issue, you know, more than likely the ER doctor should be involved in your direct care uh, given the severity of, of your situation. Um, so that's something to really also navigate and understand. Uh, and it may be if you're seeing a PA or a nurse practitioner, if you feel like you are not getting the kind of background information that you need, you know, it probably would be okay for you to say, hey, you know, I'm thank you for taking care of me. You know, would it be possible if I could speak to the ER physician uh, on staff today? because I, I want to get another perspective. So just to keep that in mind, that's an option for you. But again, if it's pretty straightforward or if you feel like you're moving in the right direction, which most of the time is the case, then you should be good to go. And I think there's another really misconception about the ER. I think there's a misconception that when you go to the ER and you see an ER doctor, that he's there to take care of every facet of your issues. And that may not be totally accurate. You know, ER doctors are trained to understand what your issues are. If anything's life-threatening, of course, deal with it. If anything's serious, deal with it. But for other things, they may leave minor issues 
for you to follow up with your primary care doctor or even a, a consultant. So if you have a, a rash or you know, a mole that you may bring up to an ER doctor, he may say, yeah, yeah, please follow up with your primary care doctor with that or, you know, uh, please see a dermatologist for that. Because in their mind, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to stabilize you, diagnose you, and literally try to get you out of that bed because the next person waiting for that bed may have a life-threatening issue. And depending on their capacity, you know, they're not there to take... So if you walk in with 10 problems and only one or two of them are life-threatening or need immediate attention, often they're only going to address those one or two problems. And I think to a certain extent, that's a misconception. Uh, I think people come in and say, well, I've got these four somewhat related problems, uh, so I'm sure I'll get all four addressed. I'll find out you know, what this is, I'll find out what that is. And that's not the case. They're only going to address things that need to be addressed. And things that can be managed as an outpatient are probably going to be pushed in that direction. So just understand that you may be given homework, you know, to follow up uh, with a whole array of uh, medical people depending on what your issues are when you land in the ER. It is not the place where you can literally get everything on your grocery list done. And same thing if you go to an urgent care. They will take care of anything that's time-sensitive, but they're not going to say, oh, let's biopsy that mole and 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 see what that mole is. They They will defer that to either a specialist, like a dermatologist, or they will defer it to your primary care doctor because they're on the same playing field as an ER doctor in terms of they kind of feel their job is to diagnose what needs to be diagnosed and in, in, that's time sensitive. But anything that's not time sensitive, they're prop, they may you know t- start you off on the right treatment for some chronic or mildly chronic issue, but they're not going to want to jump into the deep end on anything that's sort of not, you know, if you say, well, I've had this back pain you know, for five, 10 years or three months or six months and I just want to get it checked out. Um, you know, th- they may start you on some therapy, whatever, but they're more than likely going to refer you to somewhere where you can eventually get an MRI or be seen by a specialist or what have you. If you assume the clock is ticking on some of it, it has to be because they've got other patients who are, might be more sick than you. So if you go into excruciating detail about something that's a chronic issue that you want addressed, you may not get the response you think you're going to get. You know, they're there like, you know, what what do I need to help you with right now so you can go on to see? Now, if you're in pain, of course, they want to address it. You know, if you have something that potentially could get worse, like an infection, of course, they want to address it. But anything that's sort of lingering, chronic, or probably will be stable until you see someone else they're probably gonna you know push you off and and have you go in that direction when you go to the er really two things can happen you're either going to get discharged or you're going to get admitted for the most part you know there is you know a, a situation where you can get transferred to a rehab or nursing home but let's for the sake of conversation leave that out for most people for the you know, 150 million people who go to the emergency room, you know, they either get admitted to the hospital 
or they get discharged. And so let's talk about what that's going to entail. Let's talk about if you get discharged. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of the stuff that's not urgent is going to be deflected for further follow-up care as an outpatient. And you need to get a handle on that. A lot of times people will be discharged with referral to home health, home IV, home oxygen, uh, home nursing. uh, And that list is growing and growing and growing. The ability to deliver a lot of care at home has exploded and, and grows exponentially. But a lot of that requires you to be the quarterback of that. So um, I think the more of a case you can make prior to discharge to literally to get the name and phone number of the home health company, the home oxygen company, the home IV company, and maybe even have them schedule the first dose or first treatment if they can. But I certainly would push for that because what I see is a lot of people get discharged and they go home and they're like, well, f- you know, call these companies and they call those companies and well, we don't have a record of the ER, maybe, you know, what, however things got lost in the shuffle. So sometimes there's a delay in getting that care and often those patients come back to the ER because they go home and for whatever reason, the home oxygen doesn't show up, the home IV doesn't show up. And so it's very, very important that you be an advocate for all that if you're getting discharged, or especially if you have a loved one with you who can be your advocate. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's a very complicated orchestra that's being played, and there are a lot of moving pieces. You know, oxygen companies come and go and change, and you know, the, the, or they're short staffed today, or they didn't get the fax, they didn't get the email. And so a lot of things could potentially go wrong. Good news, a lot of times everything goes right. But when it does go wrong, you need to be an advocate or your loved one needs to be an advocate to fix it. And as a matter of fact, now I see a lot of, uh, you know, insurance companies who are at risk, meaning they they don't want the person to come back to the hospital. I see a lot of those insurance companies have literally high-risk teams, which meet the patient at home when they get home to make sure they have all of that stuff teed up so they don't come back. Now, not everyone has that. So if you, if they don't, you're, you and your loved one will have to be the advocate for coordinating that. That's what happens if you get discharged. If you get admitted to the hospital, there's two variations of that. One variation is you could be admitted for an observation status, which we can talk to about another in another episode. If you find that interesting, please comment below. I can talk about the difference between being directly admitted to the hospital and being being admitted to observation status, which is really like an outpatient, no man's land status. And there's differences that go along with that, both financially and otherwise. We can talk about that potentially in a different episode. But if you get admitted to the hospital, you know, then that's going to be a whole different strategy for how to deal with the hospitalization. We're definitely going to do a show on that. And then, you know, come to the hospital, you know, if you think you're going to be admitted, come to the hospital with a cell phone charger, maybe your laptop, or anything else that you think you may need, any uh, special medications or equipment or anything that you have. You know, if you're going to the ER and you think there's a high likelihood that you're going to be admitted, think about that and be prepared or have a loved one who is going to be prepared to deal with that. Third one is what you can get transferred to another facility like a rehab or a nursing home. 
But that's really kind of a very special situation uh, where, you know, it's really predicated on people with chronic illnesses that, you know, don't need to be admitted to the hospital. They just need, they need nursing care that can't be given at home. So think of it almost like a, either a nursing home or a lower level of care where it's po- often either due to their um, social support at home or simply they're getting wound care and other care that just too much that doesn't need a hospital but can't, it's just too much to orchestrate at home. And so that really tends to happen in the managed care population where HMOs will have te- have relationships with nursing homes. So if patients come in that don't necessarily need hospitalization because we already know what the diagnosis, we just have to implement the strategy ideally, uh, but really probably could not manage it at home. So rather than admitting them to a, an expensive hospital, they have the sort of secondary facilities that can ideally provide the care without the expense associated with the hospital. In essence, if you're going to go to the emergency room, if you made the decision, so just several things to keep in mind. First of all, you know, be prepared to wait, especially if you don't have something super life-threatening. Know that going into it. And also be prepared. If you think you're going to be admitted, bring anything you may need, your cell phone, medications, anything that you think you may need, laptop, what have you. And also when when you do get in the emergency room, it's really important that you understand who you're talking to. When you meet with the clinician, make sure that they're the ones that you certainly provide as much detail about your current situation as well as the nursing staff. But really understand who you're going to be talking to, whether you're talking to the phlebotomist or the ER doctor and provide the appropriate information given who they are. If you're getting discharged with a lot of home care or home therapy, uh, make sure you're your best advocate or your loved one is and and make sure that's coordinated as as well as possible. Because when you arrive home, you will not have the phone number to the ER doctor to clarify or you know, uh, sort things out. So all those questions you really should do before you get discharged. You know, what's coming? Why is it coming? What time should it be there? How long will you be on it? Because that the next time you see a clinician will be when you go see potentially your primary care doctor, which could be days from then. So make sure you know what's coming when you get home. You know, the one thing about billing, a lot of it has to do also with, um, has to do with your insurance because there's certain insurances that cover or don't cover what have you but yeah no so when you do when you do get home you know you you will ex- you can expect to get a bill from the hospital for lab work for pathology for radiology the ER doctor you know like I said is contracted and separate from the hospital and you may get a bill from the radiologist so all these people that provide you services wherever those may come may potentially show up as a separate bill. It is not sort of a all-included kind of thing. It's very much often a very a la carte situation. And this is why, uh, you know, going to the ER is 10 times more expensive usually than going to an urgent care or primary care doctor because you are going to get a lot of a la carte billing for a lot of the people you see and touch and services and diagnostic testing you get. Obviously, a lot of hospitals realize that a certain percentage of the people they see are not going to pay. And 
to a certain extent, you may kind of look at it as that's been factored into the mix. You know, a lot of blowback, you know, hospitals give for their high cost for some of their services is that, you know, they're absorbing the cost of people who don't pay or who they have to discount or what have you. I think it's a funny situation because on one hand, they're mandated by law to see everyone, whether they have insurance or enough insurance. Uh, but they still have to make the numbers work in terms of being profitable. And honestly, that's really why you've seen, you know, thousands and thousands of ERs close in the last decade, because hospitals have made that decision that on balance, that even with the people who do pay, there's enough that don't pay that they, they somehow make the decision that to close the ER. But I, I think the evolution of what's happening is all the things we talked about today. What you're going to see is more telemedicine, right? And you're going to see more urgent cares. You're also seeing a lot of managed care facilities, you know, give you 24-hour access to their doctors, either by setting up their own urgent cares or even insurance companies giving you access to a doctor. I see a lot of insurance plans that literally with their insurance card, give you information uh, to reach a doctor, you know, either by phone or by telemedicine, thinking that in the long run, that's going to save money. So, and then I think the last part we touched upon was, you know, the evolution of what can be done at home and then what could be done at a lower level of care, like a nursing home or a rehab. So telemedicine, you know, different level of care, home care, all of that is meant to take the burden off of the ER and transfer it to other places. So I think now you have a big overview of the, you know, when you should use the ER, urgent care, primary care doctor. So you have all this information at your fingertips, and now, you know, you can use this information wisely to get the best possible care for your you or your loved one in a way that's not only, you know, great care, but also economical. Uh, so you want to get the best possible care, you know, at, at the best, you know, economical way. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, Bakhtari MD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. I'll see you next week on another episode of Bakhtari MD for insights into healthcare. Know what the insiders know. As always, take care and be well.